we're going to be talking today about who do you serve? Who is it that is the boss of your life? Last week we uh, talked about Lego of my Lego, and and many of you responded. We said that each of you has has a a, a Lego, which means you know in in our talk it's a Lego, but it means that God has given every believer in Christ, everyone who's adopted into His family, a spiritual gift, at least one. And what we said is we need strategic servers who say, I'll take my gift, whatever it is, and I'll plug it in where the critical need is. You know, when a, when a dam is breaking or when a water dike is breaking, you don't need somebody to come over here and construct a whole new water dike. What you need is somebody to come and stick their finger in the dike to, to, to keep it from flooding. And sometimes things are flooding around here and we need people who will say, whatever, I'll apply my heart and my hands to the place of greatest demand. You tell me where you need me, and we will serve there. And while we're serving there, we'll pray and we'll ask God to maybe open up a new ministry that better fits my Lego, my gift mix, but I'm not going to sit around. I'm going to serve. And so we need more and more of those people. As God increases the size of our church, we need more people serving, not people sitting. You don't need more Bible study. I don't care where you are on your your faith journey. You don't need more Bible study. What you need is to obey what you already know about Jesus Christ. You start obeying, God opens up all kinds of things for you. You disobey, you put yourself outside of God's will. He is not obligated to do anything to protect you or provide for you outside His will. Today, I want to, uh, I want to look at one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I applaud those of you, many of you on the back of your cards last week, you said, I'll let go. Wherever you want me to serve, I'll let go. I'll do that. And I applaud you for that. Today we're going to look at how do you get the power, spiritual power. We're not talking about weightlifting power, which is okay. The Bible even says physical exercise is good for a time, but it's not nearly as good as spiritual exercise. So we, we need power to serve, power to see lives changed. Where do you get that? Well, we're going to learn that from the Bible today. Let me uh, show you a, a picture here, and I want to kind of describe the scene before we read the, the passage of Scripture. Um, down there at the bottom, Danielle. This is uh, the Jordan Valley, the Jordan River Valley. Now, this is significant because uh, you can tell where there's a river somewhere out there. And back in ancient times, the passage that we're going to read, this was flooded. Can you tell where the flood might have been? If you were, if you were to look at this picture and you were to guess where the flood might have been, do you think you'd, you'd know? Basically, it would go from that side way over there to these hills that are over here. Where we're looking is from the east side of the Jordan River. We're looking over to the area just um, just east of Jericho. This is significant because the promised land, the very first uh, battle that the Israelites were going to face, was Jericho, the most fortified city that they, they had uh, encountered in their time of spying out the land. And you can see the hills way back there in the distance. Jericho was the city they had to conquer if they were going to go through this passageway to get to the rest of the land that God wanted them to conquer. They had to conquer Jericho. Now, this is incredibly significant because at the time, they're on this side, floodwaters about as wide as the Mississippi running faster than the Mississippi. And God says, I want you to go across that. They're like, are you sure, God? Now, they'd heard about the Red Sea, but that was 40 years ago. Most of them were too young to remember all that. Some of them had experienced it, but most of them hadn't even been born yet. God, God parted the Red Sea. But this time, He didn't say, Joshua, stand up and hold your staff like He did with Moses. This time, He says, I want you to get the priests. They're going to carry the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's presence. And when the priests step foot in the river, it's going to dry up. 
See, the time before, Moses holds up his staff and the Bible says that there was an east wind and it parts the Red Sea and they walk through on, on dry ground. That's real easy. You got the Israelites, uh, the Egyptians behind you with, with chariots and they're going to kill you. It's real easy to get people motivated to walk through the Red Sea when you got Pharaoh and his henchmen back there going to slit your throat. Sure, I'll walk through. But this time God says, no, we're going to do this a little bit differently. I want the priests, the spiritual leaders to walk out and, and I'm not going to do anything until their foot touches the water. This is so cool. Watch what happens. <clears throat> Joshua 5, verse 1. When all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings who lived along the Mediterranean coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan River so the people of Israel could cross, they lost heart and were paralyzed with fear. Now, we're going to walk through this and, and I'm going to try to explain everything and how it applies to us today. Under Joshua's leadership, approximately two million Israelites, that's men, women, and children, were supposed to cross the Jordan River. And, and God says, I'm going to dry it up for you, but you got to put your feet in first. The spiritual leaders got to take the first step. So I showed you on the picture that it was at flood stage. It, it wouldn't be a big deal to go across the, the, a dry valley, but this was at flood stage. So you think about taking your children across a flooded river. Is that, is that intimidating? Sure it is. If you are the people on the other side of the Jordan River, you've heard about these Israelites wandering around and you've heard about what God did to the Egyptians way back when. But in their mind, they're thinking, we've got this big old river, a natural barrier protecting us from them. And then the priests step foot in the river. And you know what happens? It dries up immediately 20 miles upstream. I wish CNN had been around then to catch some of the reaction of what happened. So it's dried up. Everybody goes through. This is a big deal because it wasn't muddy. They didn't get caught up in mud. They walked through on dry ground. I would like to have been in one of those towns or villages. You know, you're going along and you're thinking, okay, the river's flooded. We're not going out there today. We're not going to jack with that. Make sure the kids stay away from the river. The river's flooded. And then the next thing you turn around and, where'd the water go? Not only where'd the water go, it's dry. Something's going on here that's bigger than us. It was a big deal because as soon as the priests came up out of the river, the priests stood in the middle of the river with the Ark of the Covenant until everyone had passed. And then God had given uh, Joshua some instructions to take some stones out of the river, put them on the side, make this memorial. And the reason they were to make this memorial was that God said, every time your children point at those stones and say, what do those stones mean? You parents are to tell them. That's when God dried up the Jordan River so we could enter the promised land. It was to remember the power of this God, a God like no one had ever seen before. This was a big deal because the people living in the land of Canaan were terrified. It says that their, mar their hearts melted with fear. Now, they already knew this even before, before they went across the Jordan River. That's because Joshua had sent out some spies. Joshua's pretty smart. You know, the first time they sent out spies at Kadesh Barnea, they sent out 12 spies, 10 of them came back and said, oh no, fortified cities, giants, we can't take them. Two spies said, we can. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua becomes the leader. Joshua's pretty smart. This time he sends out spies secretly. Why would he do that? Well, because if, if they came back with a bad report, none of the Israelites would know about it, and they could go anyway because God told them to go. So he sends them out. They swim across the flooded river. They go into Jericho secretly. They come to the house of Rahab, the prostitute, and, and look what she tells them. Back in Joshua 2, verse 9. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. 
We are all afraid of you. Everyone is living in terror. This is before he dries up the Jordan. She's telling them that God has already provided. Everyone is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. Sihon and Og came together. They tried to take out the Israelites. They destroyed every one of them. Not just the king, but everyone. We've heard what God did at the Red Sea. We've heard how God provided for you people who used to be slaves who weren't fierce battle people. <laughs> we heard how you destroyed Sihon and Og. Look what she says. No wonder, verse 11, no wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. All of this information had traveled to the people of Canaan. They were scared when they heard that the Israelites were camping on the other side of the Jordan River. But we got the Jordan. They can't get across. At least while we're at flood stage, we're safe. So when God dried up the Jordan River, it says their hearts melted with fear and their morale never recovered. Now, if you were a military leader, which Joshua was, what better time to strike the enemy? then as soon as you have come across the river, you already know they're scared because they've heard of everything has happened. But now you know they're just terrified because they all know Jericho was, was just over the horizon from where the river was, dried up. They had relatives. Some of them may have been out there fishing. They knew that the Jordan was dried up and now the Israelites were camped at Gilgal less than two miles from Jericho. What better time to strike the enemy with a military victory, when they're scared, paralyzed with fear. But God's timing is not our timing. God had something else for them to do before He would deliver them a military victory. And what you have to understand is, from God's perspective, Israel was not ready to fight on Canaan's soil. There was some unfinished business, and it was spiritual business. It was time for renewal. So this is the first thing on your listening guide. Cleansing or consecration, that's a good Old Testament word. Consecration means you set apart someone for a special spiritual um, occupation or job, some, some duty that they had. Cleansing must precede conquest. This is real important, people. And you're gonna, I hope you understand this better when we finish today. Before you can do anything for God, you must be cleansed by God. And the thing is, when it comes to spiritual cleansing, you and I can't clean up ourselves. People have tried for years and failed. I hear all the time, well, I, I'm not going to give myself to Christ because I'm not clean enough yet. Newsflash, you never get clean enough. You cannot fix yourself up enough to please a holy God because He's perfect. You have one impure thought. You are not worthy to come into God's presence. God knew that. So He sent Jesus to die on the cross, His blood purchased your life, your soul. By the way, this just thought just came in my mind. I was listening on the radio the other day and they're talking about, you know, taking care of the planet. I'm all for taking care of the planet. But what happens if we save the planet and we all lose our souls? Just a thought. God led the Israelites through three spiritual things or three things to cleanse or consecrate them before he would lead them to military victory. Number one, there was the renewal of circumcision. 
if you have any logic in your head and you've just gone into enemy territory and you're a military leader, the last thing you're going to do is take your fighting men and circumcise them. I know that's right, baby. Thank you. Little Jamie and I are on the same page. Because see, as soon as this, as soon as the priest came up out of the river, the water flowed again. Now, the way the wording is in the Bible, it wasn't like it trickled down and then it was instantaneous. There again, some poor soul. We don't know this, but I'm, I imagine somebody going, do, 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 I'm going to walk across and then <laughs> there he goes, you know. What happened? The water came back. So now they're in the promised land and their way of retreat is blocked by a raging river. The last thing you want to do is circumcise your fighting men. Are you serious, God? Let's incapacitate the army! But Joshua obeyed. It's not good strategy, militarily speaking. But here's the deal. The new generation had not been circumcised in the wilderness. The Bible tells us that as soon as they were, they were, right before they were going to leave Egypt, all of the, the, the men who had come of age, the fighting age men, had been circumcised. They went and they were going to go into the promised land. They turned away from the promised land. And so for the last 40 years, all of those people died who should have gone in. All the men above 20 died. And so all of the men under 20, or those who had not been born yet, had not been circumcised. Now, here's the deal. When God first came and appeared to Abraham, Abraham is the father, considered the father of the Jewish people, the, the, the patriarch. God came to Abraham and it says the Bible uh, that God called him a friend and, and he, had, he was declared righteous because he believed in God. And so God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Now, a covenant is not a contract. A covenant says, I am going to be bound for my life and in fact, if I break this covenant, you have, uh, you have the right to kill me. And, and I've described this in, in wedding ceremonies, that, that there was a deal where they would cut an animal in half, a covenant. They would cut an animal in half, put one half over here, one half over here, and they would call it a death walk. They would walk through the middle when they were going to have a covenant, when they were going to ratify a covenant. They'd walk through the middle. And if Jamie and I, James, if Jamie and I were, walk, were having a covenant, I would walk through the covenant and I would say to Jamie, May God do to me as we've done to this animal if I break my covenant with you. Then Jamie would walk through and he'd say, Doug, may God do to me what we've done to this animal. Rip it apart. Take its life if I break this covenant. So a covenant was a big deal. God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, I want you to have a, a symbol, a physical symbol in you that represents a spiritual commitment. Because when you get to the New Testament, it talks about circumcising the heart. This was a physical symbol that represented that they had totally dedicated themselves to God. It also helped them separate from all of the incredible immorality that was around them. Sexual immorality was rampant. Homosexuality was rampant. Um, multiple wives, multiple partners was rampant. And God says, you are not going to be like them, so we're going to take your sexual organ, men... And we're going to put a sign there that says, you are dedicated to God. So when God told Joshua, you need to circumcise your men, it took them all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish people. And they all went, whoa. 
I'm sure the man went, oh, are you serious? God says, get this, get the physical mark of a spiritual commitment, of a covenant. Then the second thing he took them through, oh, New Testament equivalent, is baptism. Baptism for a Christian is your public commitment. I wear my ring as a, as a symbol that I am married to Janie Lee Gardner. 18 years ago, just celebrated our 18th anniversary, 18 years ago, I stood in front of my brother, God, and all these witnesses, and, and I made a covenant with her, not a contract. I wasn't bailing. And, and I wear this ring as a symbol. In the New Testament, the, the physical symbol that you are a follower of Christ, your public profession of faith. I don't know if you've heard that. That's a big term in all the churches. I've, your public, what, what it is, is I declare to you that I follow Jesus Christ. That's what it is. You're publicly declaring you're a follower of Christ is baptism. Because baptism, number one, Jesus was baptized. Number two, Jesus said, be baptized after you become a follower of Christ. Number three, it is the closest thing we have to a death, burial, and resurrection. When you go under the water, you're symbolizing that you have died to your old self, that you got a new boss in your life. When you come up out of the water, you're symbolizing you don't serve a dead person who's still in the grave. You serve a risen Christ. You have a new life in Jesus Christ. The old has passed away. The new things have come. When you come up out of that water, that's the symbol, the physical symbol, that you are a follower of Christ. So some of you all the time are saying, pray for me, pray for me. God, that never do anything in my life. Let me tell you something. If at the first opportunity, the first time that God says, do something, and, and by the way, He doesn't tell us exactly when to be baptized. He says, do it soon after you follow Christ. So if you're going to bail on the first commandment that Jesus says, be baptized, why do you think God would be obligated to do anything in your life if you're not going to obey? God does not bless disobedience. Can I be any clearer on that? So, I'm not trying to guilt you into anything, but if you claim to be a follower of Christ and you've never been baptized, it's no wonder that you're not growing. When I sit down, you know I'm calming down. God was telling them, and I believe God is telling us today, before I fight any of your physical battles, you need the symbol that tells everyone you're a follower of mine. Second thing God had them do was celebrate the Passover. And without circumcision, they were unworthy, according to all the Old Testament stuff, they were unworthy to participate in the Passover. All right. Rewind very quickly. Right before, the night before they were uh, to leave Egypt, God had told Moses, go tell everyone to kill an innocent lamb. An innocent third party had to die. Kill that innocent lamb. You take some of the blood from that lamb and you put it on your doorpost. Put it on the side, on the top, and on the, on the other side. You cover it with blood because in, in, the, in the Old Testament it says, uh, or in the New Testament it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So an innocent third party, this lamb, had to die, had to give its life, so that the firstborn of the Israelites could be saved. And so God sent the death angel. If you've seen the Ten Commandments, that's the only thing I liked about the whole Ten Commandments, you know, the one with Charlton Heston, was the death angel. I remember the green coming down and coming through the streets. And the, the way it got the name Passover was if the, if the death angel saw the blood 
of an innocent third party sprinkled on your doorpost, the angel would pass over that house and no one would die. So can you just imagine? I take my son out and, and we go out and we're killing a lamb. Why do we kill a lamb? Because, son, it's the lamb or it's you. The lamb must die or you die. I, I choose the lamb. So they were, they were going all the way back 40 years to remember when God had delivered their firstborn by the blood of an innocent third party. What is that a foreshadowing of? Jesus Christ. The reason we don't sacrifice animals today is because Jesus Christ was the lamb. He was killed at the exact moment out on Golgotha, the hill outside the city. He was killed at the exact moment that the Passover lamb was being sacrificed by the priests in Jerusalem at the temple. God is just a God of timing. The other thing that's remarkable to me is God brought them up to the Jordan River at the precise time. When they came across the Jordan River, when they got to Gilgal, they, they made their camp. God circum had them circumcised. On the 14th day of that month, you know what you're supposed to celebrate on the 14th day of that month? Passover. God is a God of timing. He was reminding them, not only of the covenant with Abraham, but of His great delivering power when He brought them out of Egypt. New Testament equivalent. The Lord's Supper. When they celebrated the Passover, they were supposed to remember the blood that was shed. They were supposed to remember the deliverance from slavery and the freedom they had to follow their God. In the New Testament, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Jesus stood up with His disciples the night before He was crucified. He took bread and He said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance. This cup is my blood shed for you. When you drink this cup, remember. Remembering their past. Remembering that they used to be slaves to sin. But the blood of Jesus Christ freed them to follow their God. Do you see the symbolism? The Lord's Supper, we are supposed to look back at what Jesus Christ did for us. We're supposed to look around and if our relationships are jacked up, we're supposed to go to others and get those right. And, and he said, as often as you do the Lord's Supper, you proclaim my death and my resurrection until I come again. So you look back, you look around and you look forward. That's what the Lord's Supper is. Remembering our past, remembering what it was like to be a slave to sin and to be freed by the blood of Jesus Christ motivates me to move towards God and try to lead other people towards God. You see what God was doing? Third thing. Turn the page. After they'd been circumcised, celebrated the Passover, the next day, they ate fruit from the land. Now, when I was a kid, I thought this was the weirdest thing I'd ever heard. God said, I'm going to lead you to a land flowing with milk and honey. If you watched any Veggie Tales, Veggie Tales are great. Get your kids hooked on them. They're great. They do a deal where it's Josh in the big wall, but they talk about going into the promised land. Talk about going into the land of milk and honey. And one of the guys says, sounds sticky. You know, that's what I always thought. It sounds sticky. Why would you want to go to a land of milk and honey? All that meant was this is a land fertile for raising all the animals you will ever need to prosper, not just to survive, but to thrive. Fruits, vegetables, fertile land. This is the land I've chosen for you. And they were fed from that. The very next day after they were fed from the produce of the new land, manna stopped. 
manna, remember that was that, what is it, bread? That God provided for 40 years. God fed them manna until they were in the promised land. Alright? New Testament equivalent. Feeding on God's Word. But that's not all. The Bible says that if you are a child of God, He will supply all of your needs. On the bottom of Danielle's card, I put Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all of your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God owns it all. When I am squarely in the center of God's will, He provides for my needs, not my greeds. But when I sow my, when I, when I give from my income, you guys pay me an income, we give more than 10% of our income. Because we believe that tells God we're dependent on you. We give our time. We give our talents. When we do that, God overwhelmingly meets our needs. You want to grow spiritually? Give your life to Christ. Get baptized. Celebrate the Lord's Supper. And feed on the Word of God. But here's the deal. we got so many fat Christians because all they've ever done is go to worship and sit on their rears. When you feed on the Word of God, sometimes you got to push back from the table. Exercise is to serve. And the reason some of you are stunted spiritually is because you had not been serving. You will never grow to be more like Christ until you serve like Christ. Remember what he said? He said, I've come not to be served. The King of Kings said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Whenever you are fed spiritually, somebody's paid a price for that. If you ever hear anything from a sermon that feeds you spiritually, hours of preparation have gone into that. Whether it's me or Jamie or, or um, Jason Selman or We've had others preach. Stanley. If you are fed, somebody has spilled their life, their time, so that you can be fed. If you're sitting in here and you have children in the back, somebody has sacrificed so you could be here. If you're stunted spiritually, get off your butt and serve. So, the progression was circumcision. Remember the covenant. Wear the covenant symbol in your flesh. Passover. Remember, blood had to be spilled so that you could be freed. The death angel passed over the the doorposts that were covered in blood. And then eating, being fed. God provided every step of the way. Now, you believe all that was? That was intro. This is one of my favorite passages. Joshua 5, beginning in verse 13. As Joshua approached the city of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man facing him with sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you friend or foe? Neither. I'll come back to that in a minute. Neither one, he replied. I am commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. And Joshua did what he was told. That's one of the coolest Lines in all the scripture. Joshua obeyed the commander of God's army. Yes, sir. You want me to take off my shoes? Yes, sir. I'll do it right now. Joshua decides to take a walk. Now, here's the kind of wild thing. On the other side of the Jordan River, when it was all flooded, God gave him very detailed instructions. Here's what you do. 
You take the priest. You get them out in front. As soon as the priest touches foot in the, in the river, it's going to go up. God gave them all these instructions. Take some stones from the middle of the river. Set them up as a memorial for your children that you'll always remember what God did. But then when they got in the new land, God said, circumcise them, celebrate the Passover. You're going to eat some of the food. The manna stops. And then there's no instruction. So you're sitting two miles from the most fortified city in this, in this land you're supposed to take militarily. You got no instructions. I'm sure Joshua was thinking, this is my battle. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? He probably wasn't sleeping. So he takes a walk. Comes across this stranger. Joshua was a bad dude. Because he sees this stranger standing out there with his sword drawn. <laughs> Joshua didn't run. He's like, dude, are you my friend or my foe? Now, the New American Standard does this a little bit better. Look at, look at how it says it. Are you for us or for our adversaries? That's the next one. Do I have it on there? There it is. Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. I imagine him having that deep voice. No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the Lord's host. The answer's not no. This was a multiple choice question. A or B? Are you for me or are you against me? No. Do you see the irony? What does that mean? And then the angel says, I didn't come to choose sides. I came to take charge. The question is, are you on my side? You see the difference? Huge difference. Josh was like, um, God... Are you on my side? Wrong question. You ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. He should have said, Lord, am I doing what you want me to do? Here's what Christians do all the time. Here's where churches get off target all the time. We have our little pet projects. Well, this is what I think I should do, and this is what I think the church is. You know how many times people have come up to me and said, you know our church ought to do this? And I go, really? God didn't call me to do that. In fact, there's a lot of people in our church that will not come up to me and say, we ought to start this type of ministry. Because you know what I say? Go ahead. Start it. If it's of God, it'll flourish. If it's not, we'll try something else. I'm supposed to lead and feed. That's my job. God has called you, and I'm not saying that I'm the only one that God speaks to. No, in the New Testament, God speaks to all of His people. We're all part of the body of Christ. And so God can give you an idea. That's not what I'm saying at all, that, we, that you may not have good ideas. We don't need good ideas, though. We need God ideas. And here's the thing that I'm always amazed at. When you pray as a church about God's direction, God tells all of us the same thing. God is not a God of confusion. God doesn't come over here and, and tell little Jamie, well, you need to do this, and I don't care what that preacher says, you need to do this. God doesn't work like that. Now, God may tell James we need to do something. He comes to me and I say, wow, let's pray about that. Let's seek God's wisdom. And if that's of God, God shows me. And God shows other people. And before long, you get everybody together who's been praying. By the way, don't come tell us you've got an idea if you've not prayed. People will say, our church should do this who've spent zero minutes in prayer over the last 365 days. Don't come tell me your idea if you've spent zero time with God. Now, if you are seeking God and God is putting something on your heart, usually we can tell. 
Because you come up and you go, man, I don't know if I should even mention this to you. <laughs> but I think God is saying this. And then a group of us will go off and pray. We come back, you're right. God tells us the same thing. Because the Bible says we have the mind of Christ if we are staying close to Christ. The Lord's army referred to this angelic host that we can't even see. Angels and demons are real. And if you want to do a study on that, have at it. But there's several ex examples in Scripture. Jesus talked about before He was crucified. Remember, He was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter pulls out the sword and whoop, chops off the high priest's servant's ear and, and Jesus heals it, which would have freaked me out had I been against Jesus and He just attaches the ear. And Jesus said, Stop. Didn't you know I could have called 12 legions of angels to come and deliver me from this situation? But I was created as a, as a human. He wasn't created in the beginning. He existed with God. He was God. But He became a human for this purpose to die on a cross. He said, I, there's all kinds of angels out there. In, in Hebrews, it says that, that the angels are spirits who serve God and are set, sent to help those who will receive salvation. Angels are on hand to help God's people when they need help. Somehow there's this flash of revelation. Joshua realizes he's in the presence of a holy being. He falls on his face and he says, what do you want me to do, God? God says, take off your shoes. That's a weird command. But you see what he said after that? Take off your shoes for the place where you're standing is what? Holy ground. Why was it holy? Because God was there. Any place where God is, is holy. Do you remember another instance where God told an individual to take off his shoes because he was on holy ground? Moses. Oh, there we go. Back to Big Mo. Big Mo would run away. He's hiding in the wilderness. Sees a burning bush. Comes up and says, Ah, a bush that's burning and not being consumed. I think I shall find out why. And it starts talking. <laughs> and he says, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. Now, what the angel tells Joshua to do after that is craziest military strategy I've ever heard. He says, gather up the priests again, put them out front, put the trumpets. First day, I want you to walk around Jericho. One time, nobody says a word. If you're going up against a fortified city and all you have are sticks and twigs, maybe some spears and maybe some swords, no battering rams, no catapults, how successful do you think you're going to be? Militarily speaking, you're going to get whooped. So he says, walk around one time the first day. Nobody says anything. Walk around one time the second day. Six days you walk around one time, everybody's quiet. You just see the, Israel, the, the people from Jericho, Jerichoans, standing on the wall going... <laughs> Seventh day, they walk around seven times. And then they shout. Ah! I don't know what they shouted. Ah! Okay. The way you've always been in church or the churches that you remember. Had you come back and said, we're going to have a business meeting. Chairman of the military committee makes a motion that we walk around Jericho one day, or one time a day for six days, and the last day we walk around seven times, and then we shout. All in favor, say aye. How many, how many you think, how many votes are you gonna get? 
strangest thing I've ever seen. But when we obey God, oh, can you imagine? Because in our, in our, my church tradition, it was always any discussion after you vote, then you open it up, Robert's Rules of Order, then you open it up for discussion. Any discussion? Can you imagine the discussion? But when people, when God's people do things God's way, amazing things happen. You know what happened when they followed God's orders? They got around the seventh time and they shouted. You know what happened? The walls fell down. They run in. They slaughter the people. Do you think Joshua got credit for that? Do you think the people of Israel said, Oh, Josh, great idea! Had I been there and the walls just crumble, I'd have forgot to go in. Because I'd have been going, No way, dude. Did you see that? Guess we can go kill them now. In the military, a bottleneck, I don't know if you've heard this term, a bottleneck is where part of your army is over here. The enemy has pinched down on your supply route, the only supply route that you have. Ample supply is on this side. All the things you need to to secure the victory, artillery, backup, everything you need is over here. But the enemy has pinched down your supply route to the point that if anyone tries to make that transit from there to there, they'll be wiped out. A bottleneck happens in the Christian world when God's made ample provision for anyone to overcome the demons in their past. But that ample provision of God is cut off most of the time by the people of God not following the plans of God. And so people who are dying don't get what they need. God's not going to force His plan on you. God is waiting for an obedient people whose hearts are circumcised, who've been baptized and who said, God, you tell me what to do and I'll do it. Whenever churchgoers try to enforce their will and not God's will, it creates a bottleneck. Lost people will not get saved. Sick people will not get healed. Marriages will not be put back together. God's power will not be displayed in a church that does not look to Jesus as its head. We've got to take ourselves less seriously and God more seriously. In the New Testament, there's two great confessions. One of them was when Jesus said, who do people say I am? And and they said all these different things. And God said, who do you say I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Later on in the New Testament, Paul says, we are but men. In other words, the best confession you can make is, you're God and I'm not. Try that. Try surrendering your life to God and see what He does with your little life. You're not being fulfilled. Maybe you're not being obedient. Maybe you're not plugged in where God created you to be plugged in. Because honestly, I see a lot of empty chairs here today. Honestly, I don't think we're where we're supposed to be as a church. We've not reached. Are there still lost people in Anderson County? I don't know. I just kind of think there are. You know some of them. You're the one that's supposed to reach them, not me. You're the one that's supposed to invite them to church. You're the one that's supposed to invite them to celebrate recovery or a small group. 
You're the one that's supposed to be praying for them. You're the one that's supposed to be looking for opportunities to reach out to them. But you're not doing it. So people are going to hell. As long as my light bill's paid, who cares? As long as we've got a comfortable chair to sit in. As long as the preacher doesn't get mean, make me feel bad. Who cares? Let's just say that the captain of the Lord's army were to walk in here today. And he walks up in front of you. Are you going to ask him if he's on your side? God, would you bless what I'm doing? Wrong question or wrong statement. The right one is, God, help me to do what you're blessing. 